0: Like I said, we're in, we're in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, this, uh, the ending to the story here of Nebuchadnezzar. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, I know there's some in the aisles. Otherwise, you know, look on, on a phone. We will go through the text on the screen as well. Here's how chapter 4 begins. Right? Chapter 4 of Daniel It starts with, King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's an amazing start to chapter 4. I mean, you really think about like all of a sudden we have this incredible shift. In the whole narration in the original language, the language in the original text shifts as well. This is it's here you go. This is a new author. This is a new voice. No longer is it going to be told from the perspective of the exiles. But here you have Nebuchadnezzar himself telling you, oh, people of the nations. Right? Let me tell you, it's a pleasure to tell you of the miraculous signs and the wonders. Something clearly has happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And he is eager to tell us the story of what happened. If you continue, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians and enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So again, the image that we have here is of Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his rule, content and prosperous. I mean, there is literally nowhere left for him to conquer in the ancient world, right? Like I said, of all the kings who have ever ruled, he is arguably the most successful king that's ever ruled over a nation, over a kingdom. There is nothing left to conquer. There's nothing left to build. He's already built the hanging gardens of Babylon, which Herodotus, ancient historian, said was one of the greatest wonders of the world. I mean, he has everything. He has done everything, and he sits, and he looks out and is content. But he's tormented again by a dream, just like he was in chapter two. And again, just like in chapter two, he calls on all the wise men. Seems like he hasn't he didn't learn to just start with Daniel. And then it ends with finally Daniel comes in to interpret the dream for him. Verse nine. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. This image of a tree, this image of really this tree of life, central in everything, every, the whole world revolving around this one central tree, providing shelter for all living creatures, providing food for all, this enormity of a tree. And then in verse 13, in the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives to them anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So that tree starts beautiful. If anything, it would be a great dream, especially because I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar is associating that tree with himself. But then the tree, the, the dream takes a turn, right? Where we that the messenger called down to cut down the tree, cut it down and leave a stump. And then even, and then it gets even harder or stranger, right? The voice shifted, right? Where all of a sudden it's no longer that messenger from the gods is no longer talking of a tree, but speaks of a man, speaks of a person, right? And says, this person, this man is going to live amongst the animals, That he will lose his mind and will be driven out. You can understand why the king would be tormented by such a thing. That he would lose his mind for a set period of time. So that the living may know that the most high God is in control of all the nations. And the purpose of it all is going to be that. So that everyone will know that this, whoever this is, right, will know That God sets over the nations the lowliest of people. It's a really interesting phrase. That's the lesson Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn. That God sets over the nations the lowliest of people. Verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar... Do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. The are answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Verse 23. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and the grass of the field with its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, Your Majesty, please be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. And right? we, we know this going through the dream. We know this has got to be about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar must know this is about him as well. And you know he's the tree, he finds out he's the tree, but you also find out right, and this is, must be what was tormenting him, that he was going to be driven from his people that he will lose his mind, that he will live like an animal until the day comes that he acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Again, going back to the dream, right, that God puts the lowliest over the nations and that when he learns this lesson, he will be restored. And Daniel gives that final plea to him. It's interesting Daniel's reluctance for this dream to come true. It causes a lot of problems for us, actually, right? Like, why doesn't he want the king to be humbled in this way? I mean, clearly, if he has to tell him, right, renounce your ways, do what is right, and be kind to the oppressed, it tells you that he is not doing what is right and he is oppressing people. And which we know from history, he was a great and successful king, but he oppressed many conquered nations, took people into slavery, brought them to his kingdom, And and Daniel doesn't want him to lose power. He's desperate for him not to. He says, oh, I wish this dream was about your enemy. It's like, wow, how can Daniel say these things in all honesty? It's difficult. And he pleads with Nebuchadnezzar, maybe if, maybe if you do these things, Your kingdom will continue. Your rule will continue to reign. And so we walk away from that wondering, right? What will Nebuchadnezzar do? What will God do? What will happen? And then in verse 28, we see the ending. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you "'until you acknowledge that the Most High "'is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth "'and gives them to anyone he wishes.' "'Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar "'was fulfilled. "'He was driven away from people "'and ate grass like the ox. "'His body was drenched with the dew of heaven "'until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle "'and his nails like the claws of the the birds.' All of this happened. He looks over his city and says, right? Isn't this the city that I have built by my mighty power and for my glory? He's pretty justified in that statement. He did build it. It, It's one of the greatest, probably at this time, the largest city in the world he has built. And he looks over it, right? He says, isn't this my city that I built? And a voice immediately speaks to him, and he loses his mind, driven out, lives amongst the animals for a set period of time. That seven times really just means a set period, and it could be anything. It could be a month, but it looks like it's at least several months by the amount of hair that he grows and his toenails turning over on themselves like claws. It could be years. It could be a year, but it's this period of time where the king loses his mind and is driven away from the palace. A complete and utter humiliation for the highest and greatest king who ever ruled. verse 34 At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> excuse me, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Everything is restored. His sanity comes back to him. And he looks up and he sees the most high God and he exalts him and he acknowledges him. No longer does he speak of God as the God of Daniel. But now he speaks of him as his God. His dominion is eternal. Right? His kingdom is forever he does as he pleases with the powers and the peoples of the earth. And what a lesson for this king to learn. It's a lesson Daniel already knew: Everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What an amazing story. And it's hard to read the story. And not kind of root for Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. Right? It's, it's interesting. As you read the story, you want to put yourself in the position of the exile still. Because remember, chapters one through three, we read the narrative through their eyes. You're reading it through Daniel and his friend's eyes. You want to see Nebuchadnezzar from a distance and see it through from their perspective. And that's the way I want to read chapter four as well. Right, I want to put myself in the position of this lowly exile who's been taken from my land with this cruel, arrogant, boastful, proud king on the throne. And then when I hear these words that right, he's going to be humbled, he'll be driven from the throne, and you have to like, yeah, all right, this will be good. I hope Nebuchadnezzar gets taken down a notch. Yeah, I hope he loses his throne. I hope he comes back groveling. He deserves everything that the Lord is going to do to him. And that's the perspective we want to bring with us into this text, into this chapter. But unfortunately, it doesn't work. I want that to be the message of it. You read this text and you want the message of chapter 4 to be God really humbles the proud. Boy, God really takes down those political leaders who are so full of themselves. Oh, I can't wait for him to do that with whoever you want whoever won which election. I just can't wait for them to get taken down a notch. I believe in a God who can do that. You pray for it and you're eager for it. But unfortunately, this text, it wants us to read the story through Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. It started with Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, it, it switches. It won't let you stay in Daniel's position. Because if I was holding that position, otherwise I can't because it's hard. You know, you read through this and it is. Why is Daniel so against Nebuchadnezzar getting humbled? (laughs) You're like, no, hey, Daniel, you should be excited when you heard this dream. Right? You would be like, oh, king, this is all going to be for your good. Oh, finally, at last, you'll be humbled. No, he's right. No, I don't want you to lose your position. I don't want even knowing that you're going to come back. I hope this doesn't Like, I can't empathize with Daniel at all in the story. I can't see myself in Daniel. I've never thought those thoughts. Whenever there's been a proud and arrogant, unjust, right, I've never thought, oh, I hope you get to keep your job. I hope you keep your position of power. I hope that never gets taken away. What? But if I read it through the lens of Nebuchadnezzar, I do start to understand and I do start to see myself in him. Because the reality of the story is that the story is about Israel as much as it's about Nebuchadnezzar. That the nation of Israel, when they hear this story told to them, when they're back in the land after the exile, when they hear this, they hear their own story. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, the prophet asks, asks God, right? How long? How long until these people finally listen? How long until you finally deliver? And the Lord speaks to Isaiah in chapter 6, and he tells him, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Israel gets the story. They see themselves in Nebuchadnezzar. The promise to Nebuchadnezzar is the promise to Israel. A proud and arrogant people who will be brought low, but there will be a stump that will remain. Right? If you know your Old Testament, it always talks about that, the root of Jesse, this stump that stays that one day there will be salvation, but there will be this humbling and this being taken low that's hard news for us because again i don't want to read myself into the story as nebuchadnezzar i want to read myself into the story as daniel no one likes to be associated with let alone as the proud and arrogant person in the story pride and arrogance right it's the most universally disliked characteristic in the world all people everywhere hate the proud. No one exalts them, right? Everyone roots for their downfall. It is that one characteristic that just drives people crazy. When there is somebody who is full of themselves, who is arrogant and which leads to injustices, we are quick to spot it in others. And it incredibly slow if not impossible, to spot it in ourselves. And we cheer, we root for, we cheer for the proud to be humbled. We pray for it, we're eager for it, right? Everyone loves that story. It plays itself out in countless movies and countless books, right? When the proud gets taken down a notch, we, we revel in that, we want that. We're eager for it. But we never see how proud we are Even in that desire for the proud to be taken down a notch. Who are you to say they deserve to be taken down? There's that need to be right. And according to the Bible, right? According to Christianity, according to the gospel, this is it. Pride is the reason there is no peace on earth. From the garden to revelation, the reason that there is strife. The reason there is no longer any shalom or peace, right? The reason for all of the problems of humanity, the Bible says, is our pride. Not someone else's pride. That would be nice if that was it. But our pride is the problem and the cause of all of the strife and the hurt. That there can be no peace on earth as long as we are constantly trying to give our life meaning. Constantly trying to accumulate things or relationships, people accumulating, comparing, and boasting. As long as we do those things, there can never be peace. But it's what each of us does in our natural self. Tim Keller writes in this book, very short book, The Freedom of self Forgiveness, where he, he talks about Carl Jung and a lot of psychologists and We're talking about the state of the natural ego, right? If you just look at us, if you just look at somebody, anyone, in our natural state, we are incredibly empty, busy, painful, and fragile. He walks you like this emptiness. Soren Kierkegaard talks about this, right? That all of us, deep down, have this hollowness in us that we're really always trying to fill with something to give our life meaning and satisfaction, or that deep down, there's just an emptiness. And we know it when we look inside of ourselves, which is why we look to other things to give our life meaning. If it's a career, if it's children, if it's work, if it's church, if it's anything, we find something, work, ministry, anything, right? To give me a purpose, something to make me valuable, something to make me, right? Give me that reason, make me important. But as Kierkegaard points out, and we all know, anything... It's just not big enough. If that hole, if that, get, that hollowness was meant to be filled by God and I fill it with anything other than him, it's just, just going to rattle around in there. Where it will satisfy me for a while, but it just, it can't fully satisfy me. And so I'm empty inside, which leads to me being incredibly busy all the time. <laughs> Since I know that there's nothing in my life that can satisfy me, then I'm just busy, constantly jumping from thing to thing or busy comparing myself with others and boasting of myself, right? I mean, all of social media seems like it's just designed to do those two things, right? Every time I log on, I, I compare myself. It's literally what you have to do because you look at someone's life. You look at what someone's doing. I see what you're doing. I see what I'm doing. I compare and I boast. Right, and we boast. Either I boast that I'm doing and my life is better, or I somehow have to make the fact that I'm not doing better, and that your life is one of pride and arrogance, and you shouldn't be doing all those great things that you're doing. You're not as special as you think. But I need to compare. I need to boast, and so I'm just busy all the time because of that emptiness. And then Tim goes on to say, right, like we're empty, we're busy, and we're just in pain all the time. Right, that there's something just wrong with us that the human body doesn't draw attention to itself unless it's hurt. And he makes that kind of point, right? Like, I didn't, you don't notice your knuckles. You don't notice your toes until they hurt, until they don't work. Right? like the body points itself out to you when there's something fundamentally wrong, when something has gone wrong with it. You don't even, re, you don't even realize it. He's like, and we are in pain all the time. Right? It's hard to get through a day, let alone a week, without feeling snubbed, ignored, hurt, bothered by something, by someone, by someone's comment, by someone's post, by someone's criticism, by someone's actions, or even just our own. But it's very difficult. Right? We, we talk about how our feelings are hurt, but feelings can't be hurt. Right? What's hurting is me. Right? What hurts is, is myself, and I hurt And that hurt, I try to fill, I try to medicate, right, by my busyness and by boasting and comparing and all that, but myself is just constantly drawing attention to myself all the time. And and as I'm drawing attention to myself, Tim argues that the fourth thing about the human nature, our our self, our ego, right, is it's incredibly fragile. When I'm constantly drawing attention to myself like this and I'm constantly building myself up, I'm I'm incredibly fragile, right, just a pinprick, right? from the wrong person or the right person at the wrong time, right? And I am deflated. The right person criticizes me and I, it's game over. And I'm low. So in either position, if you're really low or you're really inflated, you're both very fragile, right? Where you just, you can't take criticism. You can't take any alternate type of realities. You can't take people saying things about you without reacting, right? We live in such a reactionary culture where I just can't, I can't let anybody else have a good life if I don't. I can't let someone get away with that. I can't let that go. I just got to react to it. So fragile, so touchy. Everyone is very, very touchy, and we see that. Right? I mean, we see these things in Nebuchadnezzar. We're going from chapter one to here. I mean, if there is somebody who fits this description, it is him, right? Who is incredibly—he—he's accomplished everything, but it's not enough. What more do you want? I want a statue too. (laughs) What more do you possibly need to make your life meaningful? The busyness, the working, the pain, that drawing attention, that being terrified all the time, right? The dreams drive him crazy, right? To the point where he's willing to kill everybody because he can't get what he wants. Incredibly fragile, lashing out in rage and in anger. We see it in Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we see it clearly, obviously, in our political leaders all around us now. We see it in our celebrities and our athletes. You just don't have to look far for this. Because the reality is we see it in ourselves, too. Right? When I'm honest with myself and I look within me, I'm the same. I just don't have as big of a platform. I'm just not as active on Twitter. But I have the same needs. My natural self is doing the exact same things. and we find ourselves right, we find ourselves quick to judge people we find ourselves quickly irritated by people right i mean is that you do you find yourself very quick to judge reactionary when someone has done something when someone says something right when someone's doing something do you always have to have an opinion about it do you feel are you quick to say oh that's a waste of time are you quick to say oh i would never do those things Quick to give your opinion. I Even mean, if you don't give it, just quick to have it. You rush to opinions of others. Are you easily irritated by the proud? Like, do you hate being around somebody who's full of themselves? C.S. Lewis of Christianity* writes that, but that's probably the greatest indicator of your own pride. Like, why do you have such a hard time around someone who's proud? Because you're proud. Because pride is essentially competitive. Why don't you like them being the big noise? Why don't you like them always giving their opinion? Because I wanted to give my opinion. I wanted to be the one who talked the most tonight. I wanted to be the one who had the opinions. I wanted to be the one. What bothers you so much about the proud and the arrogant? He gives another testimony of Christianity of this. You know, if you truly are loving your enemies, hating your enemies, the proud, do you root for bad stories to be true? You know, it gives this idea that, like, imagine, right, those people that you really dislike, who you really want to be taken down and not. You hear a terrible report, right? It's like, I, I've got a, a, it's like Twitter every day for me, right? You hear all these terrible, terrible reports about everybody. All right, I hear one terrible, terrible news story. All right, and you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds right. Absolutely, I could totally believe that. And then you hear a follow up story by somebody else saying, you know what, that original story isn't true. That original story wasn't the whole story. Is your natural inclination to hold on to that first story and dismiss the second one? You're like, yeah, right, I'm going to believe that first story. Or do you long for the second one to be true? Do you hope, do you wish that the bad stories you hear about the people you hate weren't true? Or do we want those things to be true? We live in a culture today, right, right? Where we want our enemies, we want the proud and the arrogant to be brought down so badly that we cling to these negative stories. We hope that they're true. Lewis says, right, you're in a dangerous position where you want darker or darkness to be even darker. You want somebody who is bad to be even worse. What does that say about our hearts? That we want people who are doing terrible things to be terrible people. Oh, don't we want them to not? So what's the solution to this? The solution, right, is to believe in a king who can bring the proud to humility. We want to believe in a God who humbles the proud. We just don't want that to be us. Who are the ones who are humbled. But the message of the Bible is an incredibly humbling message. Right? It's an essentially humbling message. There's no way around it. Because the message of the Bible is the message in the story of a king, a king much like Nebuchadnezzar, a king much like David. And you know, it would be fun to get into those similarities of 2 Samuel 7 and the similarities with Nebuchadnezzar. But you, it's the story of another king. Much like Nebuchadnezzar, a king who could truly look out over all creation and could have said, right, is not this the world I have created for my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Right. That statement that Nebuchadnezzar, right, a king who honestly could have said that he didn't just create one of the wonders of the world, but actually created the world himself. But this king, instead of exalting himself, this king voluntarily humbled himself left the comforts and glories of heaven and came to dwell on earth amongst humanity, born amongst the livestock, living a life with no roof, with no money, constantly being driven out by man everywhere he went. This king who took the form of a servant who healed the sick, preached to the poor, even washing the feet of his disciples, becoming a servant even unto death, dying a criminal's death on the cross, even though he had done nothing wrong. And even further, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, better than Nebuchadnezzar or any king that has ever lived, his humiliation was voluntary on his part. It was a voluntary humiliation. And it was not to rid himself of pride because he didn't need to get rid of his pride. It was not for him to learn a lesson it was not him to restore his power or his kingdom but so that he could redeem us from our pride. The only king who ever deserved the glory and praise and could have rightly exalted himself, lowered himself to lift everyone up and not just lift up his people, not just lift up those who truly worshiped him, not just lift up those who were lowly and humble and meek and might, but who died for the proud and for the arrogant, for his enemies, right? That's the message of the gospel, right? How the love that he showed us, he died for me while I was yet his enemy. How much more is his love for me now that I'm his friend, right? A king, you can imagine a king dying for his friends, but this king died for his enemies. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the message of the hope of Christ. And if this story is true, which all of scripture points to, if this is true, if this is true, that there was this king who did this, it, it humbles us. Right? I mean, it, it humbles you. It's an offensive, offensive message. The cross of Jesus Christ is one of the most offensive things in our culture and in the world ever since it happened. Right? Because it tells you, right, in the face of Christ on the cross, I realize I'm not as great as I think I am. I can't be. All the people of the world are nothing is what Nebuchadnezzar said. Right? He, he was the greatest king in the world. And he says, I'm nothing in the face of this God in the face of the cross. Who am I? I can't save myself. I can't build my kingdom. I can't do anything. Nothing I have done could ever give me that kind of love the cross confronts us and tells us that we're not as great as we think we are. But it's also humbling in that it tells me that I am more loved than I ever dared dream that I could be. I look around me and I see the truth about the proud and the arrogant in this world. I see myself in them. All right, Paul was talking about the New Testament. Remember who you once were. Remember who you are. Remember, remember, right? Look at the proud and the arrogant. Christ died for them the same. He died for you. You are no better than they don't think so highly of yourself that you would not do the same things that they do in their positions. Do you think you wouldn't do the similar? Christ has reconciled and redeemed them. They are not as important as they think they are either, but they are also more loved and more cherished by the king than they ever thought possible or you ever thought possible. It brings me into a position, right? The cross of Christ, this king, this crucified king brings me in a position of loving God for dying for me, who is proud and who still is proud and arrogant. But it also puts me in a position of loving my enemies because this king died for them too, no matter how prideful and arrogant they are. How can I sit in judgment over someone when my king died to save them? How can I judge, right? How can I judge them? Which puts me in this position, right? Which seems to be the hope of the New Testament and of all scripture that, that I can actually speak the truth. I can judge people's actions and decisions, right? And I can say, that's wrong. But without judging the person, that I can actually love people, but also say what they're doing is wrong, which is what Daniel and his friends are able to do all the way through, Daniel. Loving the king And saying what he does is unjust. That you're oppressing people. You're doing what is wrong. But but never wavers in his love for the king. The gospel puts us in that position. How can I sit in judgment over myself either when the king has died for me? Where I'm now freed from having to connect everything that happens in my life back to me. My success or my failure ultimately isn't about me. We believe in a God who has humbled the proud. What a good thing. Because if it was left to me to humble myself, I never could do it. But we believe in a God who makes low those who exalt themselves. A God who has died for all. A king who has humbled himself for us. The message of Daniel, the message of chapter 4 here is not humble yourself like Nebuchadnezzar and then you will gain the king's favor. Nebuchadnezzar didn't humble himself. He was humbled by this God. And it's the same message for us. Be humbled. It's not look at Jesus and then all of a sudden try to muster up some humility. No, look at Christ and be humbled. When you look at the narrative of the gospel, when you see who your king truly is, it humbles you. In our culture and our climate today, which is probably the most boastful, arrogant, prideful culture that's ever probably existed. I don't know if that's true. Feels like it. What's the antidote? It's always been. It's always been Christ. A king who has humbled himself. Look to him. Remember who your king truly is and remember who you, what your king has done for you and on your behalf. And then love the prideful and that boastful and the arrogant in your life, in your neighborhood, in your governments, and everywhere the way that he did the way that he loved you. Let's pray.